Good evening, everyone. Good evening. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors here at St. Philip Deacon. It is my privilege and pleasure to welcome you here tonight as we conclude the 12th season of the Faith and Life Lecture Series. Um, I always like to ask at this point how many people are here tonight who have never been to a Faith and Life event uh, in the past. If you could raise your hand. Wonderful. Good. Welcome. Special welcome to all of you. I'm glad you're here. Uh, and welcome to those of you who have been following this series for the last 12 years. As you know, if you have followed the series, our goal has been to bring in exceptionally gifted speakers from uh, both the country and around the world to talk about different dimensions of how Christian faith connects with everyday life. Um, and tonight, at this point, what I would typically be doing is introducing our speaker. Uh, however, tonight, rather than having me introduce her, uh, we're actually going to watch a seven-minute video or so that will give you some context for who she is and what she's been through. And uh, so I'm going to draw your attention to the screen here as I pray that this DVD actually works. Rwanda is a tiny country located in the Central Africa. It was and still is one of the most beautiful places in the world. Very green and perfect tropical weather. My village was in Kibuye. Our house was on a hill that overlooked Lake Kivu. My mom and dad were teachers. They were very good parents who were very respected in the village. In my family, we were four children. I was one girl among three boys. We loved each other a lot. We were very protective until the last time we separated. There was a rebellion going on, an ethnically based rebellion uh, in Rwanda. Right after the holiday, I had an exam, really an important exam. The regime in Rwanda that was responsible for the genocide was a criminal regime. It operated uh, according to the logic of criminal gangs. So I wrote to my parents and I told them I wanted to stay in school to prepare for my exam. And the aim of the, uh, of the uh, military dictatorship was to preserve power by eliminating that rebellion. My father said, we miss you, and you have been away so much, away from us. So I went home. Easter vacation that year changed everything in my life. The president's plane was shut down, and the genocide began. 
The two leaders died after attending peace talks aimed at ending decades of tribal conflict in the two countries. President Habyarimana of Rwanda and President Ntari Amira of Burundi were killed when their plane came down near the Rwandan capital Kigali. Both were members of the majority Hutu tribe. When the president's plane was shot down, it just was, was chaos. Within less than an hour, you started to hear the gunfire in your own neighborhood, right up close to you. Before, it was always kind of far away, and, and it's like it just spread everywhere. And it was a very well-organized program of genocide. Uh, it had been established before the plane went down, and it was just waiting for this event, or an event like it, to click into motion. These people had lists. They had lists of people that had to be killed, they had, and then it became crazy. And I remember my father telling me, we are worried that you might get raped, and we, we are worried that we can't help you. They were going home to home, neighborhood to neighborhood, uh, breaking down doors, hacking people to death. Some of the names of uh, Tutsis were being broadcast on the radio. When I saw Immaculate back in, in her own home area, and she says to the photographer, hey, come and take a picture of me with this man. And, and I'm asking her, who's this man? And she explains to me, well, his brother killed my brother. And I'm like, wait, you know, my Western mind is kicking in and I got to understand who, what, the details and stuff. And she just puts her arm around him and she says, no, it's okay, it's okay. I just about lost it because it's not okay. You read in the powerful little museum here in Kigali, a young Rwandan child saying, if you would have really known me for who I was, you could have never killed me. When I think about heroes here in Rwanda, I think about people like Immaculate who are willing now to share what life is like. Going back, touching on it, exploring it. For her to take the time and to visit these places with people like us and let us share in some of that grief and some of that process takes unimaginable courage. I did hate, of course. I was very angry. During the bathroom time, I couldn't understand how another human being can cause you so much pain. Why? We were all created. We never chose to be who we become. 
We don't choose our race. We don't choose our tribe. We don't even choose a country where we are born. And I thought that I can pay them back for what they were doing to me. And thank God I was able to see that that was useless. That was only going to prolong the pain and hatred in this world. I hid in this tiny bathroom for 91 days and they never found me. But I found myself. Will you help me welcome Immaculate Ilabaganza? Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you so much, thank you. It is really, really a great joy to be here, and I'm so grateful that you invited me to to share my story with you. And, you know, my agent, when he told me I'm coming here, which I, I do go to many places, and he says, is a Lutheran church? I said, Papina, I'm Catholic, right? <laughs> he said, yeah, they know. <laughs> well, I love them. <laughs> I just want to make sure they love me too. <laughs> no, it is really great joy, and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy. I have been privileged, you know, to speak about my experience and go to... Adventist churches and share my faith and go to Jewish places and go to Mormons, you know, and, and that is those places you realize that no matter what differences, however we believe a little bit differently, there is a human heart. We are all the children of God. And when we speak from our hearts, we are all the same. But especially here, I am I'm home. I'm a Christian like you. And um, I was coming with... Uh, Pastor Tim, Father Jim, but I'm trying to call you Father Tim. Okay. <laughs> it's the same. <laughs> but as we're coming together, and I'm really just, it brought me back to, to my home, especially my story when I was hiding. I hid in a home, my Protestant pastor, who was a friend of my parents, and they trusted to send me to hide. So when I saw you, it reminded me a lot about my hiding time. So I'm really happy that you invited me to speak here because there's a lot of emotional connection in that way. The genocide was a terrible thing, a terrible, terrible experience. I will not wish anybody to go through what I have gone through to see what I saw, but it is also a story that taught me so much, so much about life, so much about faith. And among many lessons I learned, one of them was maybe actually a gift, not a lesson. I knew it, but somehow it was not as strong as it became to know without a shadow of doubt that God is real. God we read in the Bible, God we have heard, who is everywhere, who loves us, you think maybe he loves you because you still have a good life, okay, everything's going well, 
But you don't think, maybe if I got through trouble, then you would think God have left me. But it was actually through the darkest hour that I saw God, that I saw his love, that he spoke louder. And I really was sure for sure, yes, there is God. And my life never been the same. Another big lesson I learned was to know the power of love. No wonder why our Lord gave it to us as the greatest commandment. Love God above and love one another. Because if a genocide happened to a country, it's because we failed to love one another. I used to work at the United Nations and um, We've been a suit, dressed very nicely, right here in the New York City and in my country. And we'd have big meetings and we would talk about how this should never happen again, what happened to Rwanda. And I'm looking at people, but what are you doing? It doesn't take money, it takes the heart. It takes to change, it takes love. Unless we touch about what really went wrong, we cannot say it can happen again. It's going to happen again. Whatever decision you take, it will happen again. Unless we really talk about what was, went wrong. People loved each other less. People forgot to love one another. And when you are in the office, you see people who sit together are fighting for a promotion, looking at each other in a bad way, hiding each other information, and then you're saying, no genocide again? These are the seeds. You start home. You start in the office for people to care for one another. And then we can think that it's possible we can avoid the genocide in the countries. So love became something to honor. So simple and yet so big. And when you see it lacking in your homes, just know this way it starts. And to love one another, it took another picture for me. The way we talk to one another, the voice we use, the, cho the choice of words we use to communicate one another, to one another, the attitude, all that is love. And either it can promote peace, either it can take it away. In my country, hatred, lack of love took a million people. It is then you realize, wow, so love is that simple and yet that important. I do respect love. Another big lesson was to know that forgiveness actually was possible. And yet without forgiveness also, it can take peace away from you for years. And yet it is a grace, but it is also a decision we take to even ask for that grace. I used to think, you forgive somebody who says something bad about you. I was a student before the genocide. Somebody who took my pen, I can forgive them. I will think about that. <laughs> but not somebody who killed somebody from your family until I went through hatred that burned my skin. Hatred, I felt you can't put, put in a place, can, nothing can hold it. I remember being angry and feeling my skin is burning. My blood is running faster out of anger, out of my own thoughts. 
I am sweating out of anger and nobody is touching me. I wanted to kill the whole country. And I feel like I was one of those people who were killing in my thoughts. I couldn't do it with my hands physically. But in my thoughts, I did it. I revenged. And with all that, my skin would be burning. And to go there and to come back to a journey where I felt peace, I didn't know it was possible. But it was the greatest gift. I remember a time in a genocide when I would feel so much peace from God and I would ask him, I wish I can, t- I can have people, I can just tell them that you are really there, that everything you told us to do is actually for our own good. Look how I'm feeling so happy when I'm praying, when I'm letting go the anger. My body is responding to that. So it was a terrible experience, but it was an experience that really allowed me to feel the things they tell us in the Bible and to see them real. Hatred and love in extreme ways. And I have been privileged to meet people who really share the experience with me. Some people have told me after we heard you speak and after we read your book, we were able to let go the anger. I mean, when I was writing, it was not my intention. I just thought I'm exper- sharing my, my experience. However, I saw that my story, sharing our stories, not just me alone, somehow we encourage each other, we give each other hope. You know, when you know that another person has gone through such a thing, you realize you too you can survive it. But to see how many people especially who came and said, I was able to let go the anger. I realized that I wasn't maybe the only one who have struggled with that. We really struggle with anger. And the thing is, the world we live in, we get hurt. No matter what you, you don't want it, you want it, you will get hurt. We hurt people on purpose or without on purpose, willingly and willingly. And we really have to be ready to apologize and have to be ready to forgive. Otherwise, we cannot live in peace in this world. I remember a man who told me, he said after I heard you speak, for the first time in 54 years, I was able to sleep in peace. And I just knew what he meant. Another lady told me, after I heard you speak, I went home, I picked up my phone, I called my mom, I have not spoken to in 20 years. She said, after I blow up, I left, I never looked back. And she said, we cried and we laughed after 20 years, just with one call. And she said, I can't believe how much affection I wasted from my own mother, out of my own, my anger. And it is really the prayer I offer God when I go to speak, if he left me for this, at least that the grace he used to touch me that will touch you because we all have something to let go. As you saw in the documentary, the genocide started in 1994. I was a student in college and I was home for Easter holiday and I never forgot the day it started. It was Wednesday. My brother who had just finished his master's degree came to my room, pushed the door and gave me the news that the president of the country died that night. 
So in my country, we had two main tribes, Hutu and Tutsis. And I belonged to a tribe that was not well loved. But it was really political problems. However, as you know, the politics, they affect us. So we loved each other between the tribes. My best friend to this day is from the other tribe. But somehow the politicians, for their own self-interest, they had been causing these two people not to like each other. There was a radio, I remember, you just saw it in the documentary, for two years before the genocide, where the journalists would act like they were drunk. So they would be saying things like, one day we will kill those people. Have you seen them? They're not human beings. They have tails, they have horns, and they will laugh. And these are the people we look alike. We say, you don't know who is Tutu, who is Hutu. But they have been doing that for the self-interest of protecting the power. It was almost like political parties. That's how it went to. So the Hutus said, if we have this, we kill them, we keep the power. So that was the reason behind it. So they have started the genocide, they have prepared it, and the very beginning was to kill the president. Many people believe his own people killed him because he would not allow them to kill a whole tribe under his mandate. They knew that the world would ask him what happened, so they killed him to be a sacrifice for that. So when my brother told me, I remember my mind went back to that radio, and I thought, they're going to kill us. They were insulting us all the time, but it's not fair. I mean, to be born somewhere and somebody just want to kill you, but somehow you knew in your mind, I knew something bad is going to happen. I remember I went outside, I met my parents, we were so worried. My parents were teachers. We put on the radio, we capturing every channel just to try to find out what was going on in the country. The people who were the leaders now who took over after the president, the president died, the new president, they blocked the borders right away, like 10 minutes after the president died. No one can go outside. They shut down every activity in the country. No work, no bank, no public transportation. They told us all to stay home. And they were reporting people who were being killed. I remember two hours later, BBC Radio reported 18 families. 10 children and mom and dad have just been killed. Eight children and mom and dad have just been killed. They will report. And I remember my father thinking and saying, this never happened before. Where they killed a whole family. Well, that's why they call it the genocide. And I remember at the end of the day, we had so many people coming home. By the second day, we had about 10,000 people. People from different areas coming to my house and asking my parents what to do. My parents were people who cared so much about everybody in the village. I remember the things we used to speak on our dining table was somebody who doesn't have money to see a doctor, how they can raise money to send that person. Somebody who needs to, to go to school in a poor family, don't have money. It was always about people who need help in a village. The village was like a family. If one was suffering, it was a concern of everybody. And I really, as children, we didn't like my mom and daddy's talk. 
You know, we wanted new clothes, new shoes, not to talk about the next person to help. Until people started to come home when the whole thing started. And I wondered, why are they coming here? It was then I realized people had been touched. They knew how much people, my parents cared for them. That really touched me. It, it, that was the beginning of showing me the power of love, of caring for people. And I remember one of the image. I remember of my father. He wasn't official leader, but he was. He just cared about everyone. I remember one of the image. He stood in front of everybody. Tutsin, who took him from different religion, you can be Protestant, Catholic, you know, who is a Tutsi, who is a Hutu, so it was nothing at all about religion. But I remember last image I saw, he had the rosary in his hand, I come from a Catholic family, and he spoke to everybody, and people trusted him. And the words he said, they really increased my faith. He said, if it is a matter of a small group, that want to kill us, we will defeat them. Do not be scared. Fear is our worst enemy. And then he said, however, if it is the government that want to kill us, I cannot lie to you. They will kill us. They block the borders. They have the military. They have the police. And then he said, even if it was a government, let not be scared. Let's take this as a chance God is giving us to repent our sins so we can go to heaven. I remember thinking, somebody believes in heaven? Who is about to die? I mean, I knew I had faith and I really thought I did. But it was a moment that revealed to me, maybe not that strong. My father was not a doctor who is telling somebody, too bad, you have a bad sickness, you will die. He was one of the people who are going to be killed. And he is saying, let's take this as a chance. How many people who know they're going to die? How many people who die by accident? But as maybe we know, so let's repent our sins so we can be clean. You mean you're telling people how to die, not how to run? It was really a wake-up moment. And I remember he came to me. And in that moment, I was trying to remember everything I've done in my life that God doesn't like, every sin, so that I can apologize to God. He came to me, he handed me the rosary beads he had, and asked me to hide to a neighbor who was a Protestant pastor and who was from the Hutu tribe. I remember before I left, my brother came to him and he said, Dad, you are sending him, her, to a man who is from the other tribe. If things go bad, they will kill, him. They will kill her. And I was one daughter. That's why they tried to protect me. They wanted to just make sure I was safe. And the boys just were pushing me. And then my father said, I know that man. Even if things go bad, he will not be able to kill. He's a friend. And I really have to insist, not everyone was killing in the other tribe. Not even half of them. It was a government was using the tribe name to gain the power. We are killing them. That was also another moment that really just like emphasized the lesson my father used to tell us. This was the man different from us, but he 
knew he was a good man. He used to tell us, do not judge people. Avoid putting people in boxes because they come from that country, because they come from that state, that religion, that tribe. He said, always open your heart. If people prove you wrong, take your distance. But if they don't, remember, we are all good children. In that moment, it was also a moment I said, he meant it. I mean, I knew how much he loved me, that he's sending me to a person who's completely from the other tribe, but he opened his heart to be his friend, to be able to see this man is not what they say everyone should be in that tribe. I went to the man where they sent me. I remember when I was leaving, it was almost like a voice in me was clear enough and was telling me, look back, you will never see them again. And another voice in me, I was fighting it. Why? Why are we not see them again? I mean, we are among friends, among neighbors. I will make a step, something in me will tell me, look back, you will never see them again. It was really hard. I went to the neighbor. I told him what my parents told me. I remember he put me to sit in a tiny bathroom, three by four feet. I can still remember his face, he was so scared. He said, you never know what can happen in a times like this, when the politicians start to use any way to hurt people, to protect their power. So he showed me this tiny bathroom, three by four feet. I remember when I looked at that place, I thought, this is too small for me. I can't sit here. I mean, three days before that, I had a scholarship in college. I was going to school. I was paid to go to school. I had my own room in school. I had my own rooms in my parents' house. Three days before that, everything seemed to be okay. In my life, in my life until then, I have never seen a family member dying, not even a grandma. I have never been to a funeral in my family before that. And you mean things can change that quickly? And I'm sitting in this three by four feet. As I was complaining, the pastor went and brought five more women. Later, he brought two more women. We were eight people in three by four, by four feet. It was also another moment that really taught me something. When you think things are bad, <laughs> they can get worse. <laughs> and really taught me just to take things easy not to complain necessary, or not to take complain as something good, <laughs> because actually it makes things worse. But I think when we take it easy, calmly, you can see things in the face, and then calmly you can make decisions to make the next step. So when we were now eight, we had to find a place to sit in three by four feet. Literally, we were sitting on the top of each other. I remember the elder was 55 years old. The younger was seven years old. The man told us that he won't even tell his children that we are there. He said he will tell them that he lost the key of the bathroom. He said, you never know who can say something. It will be too late, even if I trust my children. So we sat there. We couldn't make any noise. 
he came to visit to see us again not that he didn't want to come to give us food to see us but the time he can afford to come back was about 2 3 days later because no one knew that we were there and to have eight people in Rwanda this especially my village was really poor it was that place we don't have electricity we don't have fridges storages like in america you have cookies and you have you know things you store you can eat we cooked in Rwanda lunch and just finished at night you cooked again and just finished and you cook again next day so he couldn't have found any food and later he managed to give us food they can he took from the garbage oh i used to be so picky in my family i gave my mom such a hard time to eat i couldn't even eat food that was mixed together i seem to care how food looks like in my stomach and now i had to close my eyes my nose and eat just to survive i remember at the end of the week the man came to give us food i couldn't take it i thought it was too much i could not spend the year another one more day so i grabbed his food and i asked him if he can put a radio outside so we can hear what was going on in the country he was kind he put three different radios different channels outside of the bathroom where we can hear i couldn't believe what was going on in the country the leaders who used to hide behind the private radio they were out on a national radio calling everybody to kill everybody of my tribe i remember one man again also who did something to my faith good actually he said he was he was a government minister he had a phd we respected him we knew him i remember his daughter was one of my girlfriend from high school so he used to come to visit us from trips from europe and he would bring us cookies and chocolate which i have never seen before so this man was somebody who who was very important in the country he was a government minister he went on radio and he said do not forget to kill the children a child of a snake is a snake a child of a cockroach is a cockroach they are not human beings and what he did to my fate was i used to put somehow some trust in the politicians on people who had a bigger diploma because they must know better they going to school after all they did or that they must reason better it was that moment i realized the heart is smarter than the brain and two put together they can make sure for sure make a miracles but if you don't have love if you don't have the value to guide what you are learning this can only damage he is saying kill children a child is an enemy that was the time i started to trust fully the voice in my heart to trust god what he said and to see what is outside if it is really what the person is saying is truth or not regardless of who that person can be so they gave prices to people who killed more people they reported how they run to churches and burn people who went to churches i mean they would go to anglican churches baptist catholic protestant and burn people who run to churches they would go to stadiums and throw hundreds of grenades inside to kill everybody who ran to stadiums 
and they will be laughing, giving prices. And I'm like, what is going on with people? So they thought somehow they have cleansed the country after they killed thousands of people. But the worst happened to us. They gave order to start search home by home. You think it was bad to be in one room without moving for one week? But to know that somebody is going to come to hunt for you, it was the worst thing I've known. I remember the day they came for the first time. I was stretching, and I saw in the tiny window of the bathroom something I thought was a thousand people. People from my village. People I went to school with. Literally people I can call friends. They were, now they told them we are enemies, so they turned against us. I remember they were dressed in the banana leaves, you know, to try to scare people. They had all kinds of arms, machetes, long spears. They came inside the house and they started to scream. And I remember the feeling I had, which happened many more times. I remember feeling like my body is in fire, but I am not dying completely. Like I wish the fire can burn me and get done with it. I remember feeling like a thousand needles are going through your body, just knowing that I'm going to die in a few seconds. And the worst question to ask yourself is, why? God made me. I didn't choose this. Call me a stone. Call me a tree. But don't kill me for that. Don't hate me. It was so unfair. And I wished just to open their eyes and show them I'm not bad. I... This is what they call me. I, I wish you can see I'm innocent. No, it was enough just to belong to that tribe they gave you to be killed. Then I remember, I mean, this was a four-bedroom house. So it wasn't like a building, not even a basement, somewhere you think you can hide in some corner. That was it. I remember feeling like I had two voices over my shoulders. And one voice is telling me, Open the door and the torture. They're going to find you anyway. And this was nothing too strange. It sounded like me being reasonable. I mean, why wait? If they're going to find you, there were three to four hundred people. That's what the pastor told, told us later. You couldn't think there's an escape. However, I mean, this is nothing too strange. I think I still go through that when I'm facing a challenge, and maybe you do. Should I, should I not? Give up, not give up. But it's always bad and good. So the nicer voice, something inside of me was telling me, do not open the door. Ask God to help you. Remember who God is. God is almighty. You know what almighty means? It means he can do anything. You know what anything means? It means even if I see you, they might not be able to touch you. You know how nice to be able to have that? I don't even know how people who don't believe in God, how they live. How do they go through trouble without believing that there's something beyond you, bigger than you, that can defend you? But that was nice, and I really felt hope. Oh, that's good, that's true. I can ask God, I'm not here alone. But the body voice convinced me. There is no God, really. Do you know how many innocent people dying? The kids, 
Why would he protect you in a way, even if he was there? But he doesn't exist. It is all your pastor and, and your priest told you just to convince you otherwise. And that voice kind of convinced me, yeah, there's no God. However, again, it was like a battle between good and evil. I felt like the nicer voice something said, before you lose your faith, at least ask God to give you a sign that he's there or not. And as quickly as that, I turned to the nicer voice and I remember asking with all my heart, not as a Christian, not as a Catholic, from a creator to the creator, the one who made me. Who are you? I remember asking God, if it is somebody who made this ground I'm standing on, if it is somebody who made my skin, if it is somebody who controlled my breath, somebody who put together all the moon and the stars, I am begging you, just show me a sign. Are you there? Can you hear me? I might not understand how things work with you, but are you even there? And if you give me a sign, I promise you, I will never lose faith in you again. I might not understand, but I will know you are there even if I can't hear you. In that moment, I remember asking God for a sign, a specific sign. I didn't want to get confused. Who did it? Was it luck? Was it me? You know, was it God? And I remember asking God, if you can hear me, you don't have to speak, but don't let the killers open the door of the bathroom. Four bedroom house, three, four hundred people not opening this door, I will notice you who did it. Because if it is about being saved, they can see us and not even kill us. But I don't want to look in their face. Please, don't let them open the door. I think after that, I fainted. I couldn't hear nothing. Until about five hours later, the pastor was hiding us, came to the bathroom and opened the door. We all jumped. We thought it was the killers who have arrived. And he told us they have left a long time ago. And he told us what has happened. He said a big number of them went around the house to make sure no one would jump out of the window. Another number went inside the house. Another number went in the ceiling of the house with flashlights to make sure no one is hiding there. Another number went on the roof of the house to make sure no one is laying there. They went in every room, under the beds, in the closets. They even opened suitcases to make sure there's no babies hiding. At last, they came right to the door of the bathroom. One of the killers touched the handle. He said, I was sweating, I was shaking. That was what the man who was hiding us said. And he said, the killer touched the handle. Before he pushed and opened, he said, you know what? We trust you. You are one of us. You are a good man. You cannot hide the bad guys, the enemies of the country. You are one of us. There's nothing here. And he turned around and left. When the man told us, the shocking part for me was not, oh, we are saved. It was, oh my God, God is rich. God heard me in the bathroom, not even in the church. And then I started to think, I didn't even speak. I only thought, 
So it's true what the priests have been telling us and that God is can see everything he's inside of us and outside is true he's everywhere but that was good to realize that I'm not alone no matter where I am even when I don't talk but a little bit scary was he sees everything it was a little bit scary even when I'm thinking he knows you mean we don't have any privacy <laughs> It's a little bit scary. Well, what that did to me was I started to speak to God as I'm talking to you. The anger I had. I would tell him, well, you know I have, I have a good reason to be angry. I know you don't like it, but you know they're killing my family. So I'm sure you understand because he sees anyway. I remember I asked the man, the pastor, to give me the Bible because now I just wanted to know who is this God I almost lost faith in? If I almost lost my faith, it's because in the first place, I didn't have enough. And that was a little bit scary, how between the two I can get stuck and how quickly I could have opened the door, ended, end the torture. But now I turned to God. He gave me the Bible, and I started to read the Bible, not like how sometimes I read it, Sometimes I read just to make sure I prayed today and I read the Bible and by the evening I forget what I read about in the morning. No, I was reading to understand, to learn. Who are you? Why did you create us? How would I light? Why did you made us for this mess? It's so funny. When you talk to God, somehow he answers back. I don't know how. I have I don't think I never heard him speak louder, like I can say I know the tone of his voice, but somehow he speaks back. I felt like God, God was saying, I created you because I love you. What, what do you think a couple, when they get married, they want to have a child? Would you think the couple have plans for that child? Or are we going to make a doctor out of the child? And, or this child will do this to us, for us? No, they want to have a baby. A baby to love. The same way I made you. Okay, then, okay, but how are we in this maze? How did we end up in a genocide? Because I was preferring not to have been born than being there at that time. How did we end up here? I felt like God was saying, open the Bible. I gave you directions to follow. They have not been followed. What happened when an adult tells a child, don't touch the stove? It's hot. It's going to burn you. And the child goes like, oh, let me touch it. It's a nice color. It hurts. And sometimes consequences can be really heavy by not following the directions you are given by somebody who cares about you. From that moment, I realized the commandments of God are not a way to say I'm, boss. I'm bossy. I say so. You don't do that. Actually, it's the way God is saying, don't go there. Don't do that. It hurts. It will cause a lot of troubles. So don't do it. That's how I really started to see the commandments of God. Love one another. Not because I say so, but because it is better. It will protect you. It has not been done. And somehow, I just wanted to understand. And then I remember thinking, okay, God, but how do we end this? How does it end? Where do we go after this? How long do we stay in this mess? 
in life. And I remember again reading, I don't know, it was coming to my heart, but think about it. Life on earth, it might be a hundred years. How many people will reach to that? A hundred. What about after? Well, there's a choice of heaven and there's a choice of hell. It's up to you. What do you want to work for? Now, let me look at heaven. And I wanted to look in the Bible. What does the Bible speak about heaven? It's a paradise. A paradise? How long is it? Eternity. That is long. Billions and zillions of years in a paradise? You mean no more pain and no more getting older? Just like a bliss forever and ever? I remember taking a pen on a paper. Let me try to compare this so that my brain can really get it. Life on earth, a hundred. Life in heaven, billions and doesn't end. And I remember comparing the two. Life on earth becomes like a dot on a map compared to eternity. It becomes like a blink in a lifetime. And I remember thinking, I'm, I'm a student in college. I know how to count. Why do I care so much about this, more than this? I mean, it doesn't make much sense. And I really now wanted to care more about that, the long thing. How do I get here? Oh, every page I open the Bible was, pray for those who hate you. I'm like, oh, you don't know my enemies. They're really bad. Close the page. I will open another page. Love you enemies. Yeah, mine are terrible. Close the page. Everything is about forgive 70, 70 times. Like my own, I tried to kill my mother. They tried to kill my dad. So this is not normal enemies. So I'm not going to love them or to forgive them. I just wanted to know God, but without them, that part of forgiving and loving your enemies. I've never heard anywhere before somebody's trying to kill your whole family and you're telling me God there to forgive? I couldn't read that. But I rejoiced in just knowing God and what can happen. So that really helped. And then I said, okay, good. Now I have to pray. So especially in the Catholic, which I always tell my Protestant friends, you can really use the rosary because the rosary is the Bible. My father have given me the rosary. And the way we pray the rosary for those who know about it, every bead represents a prayer to say. And really the rosary is the summary of the New Testament, the life of Christ. You know, thinking about some events in the Bible. So I remember starting to say the rosary my father gave me because we used to say it in my family and I did. So I'm going through it. One rosary takes about 25 minutes. When I prayed, it was like I moved from the bathroom to a place of air. It feels good to pray. Then I said, let me keep praying. I ended up praying all day. I remember I prayed like 27 rosaries every single day just to run away from my own poisonous mind, reading the Bible and praying and meditating on these moments in the life of our Lord. So as I was praying, so one rosary and one rosary, it is pre-made prayers. You say our Lord is prayer six times in one rosary. So I said about 200 our Lord is prayer every day from morning until sleep. Because I wanted to remain with God. So many things changed because now I knew the God I'm talking to looks inside. I remember just, especially that prayer, which is our common prayer, we pray together. 
our Lord is prayer. I remember going through this part that said, our Father, now that I know I'm talking to the one who hears me. And then I remember thinking, our Father. But if I say that, it will mean that you are the Father of everybody. But you can't be the Father of the bad guys. You are only the Father of the foreigners and people of my tribe. And then I feel God is so kind and so patient. I felt like something inside was telling me, okay, let's think about that. Suppose one of your brother does wrong. Does your dad stop being their father? No. Actually, my dad will spend more time thinking about the one who did wrong more than the good one. Okay, I can take that. Okay, our father. Because something was telling me, minute. It's the only way to speak to God when you know that he looks inside. Mean every word. It is the only way he can also, everything he said in the Bible, those who believe all things are possible, you have to believe with your heart. Be there. Know that you have done your part. So I wanted to do my part so I can count on God's promises. I can be sure that whatever I'm believing, he said, if you said this mountain to move, it will move, then I can really be sure that I am doing my part. I say, okay, our father of the good and the bad, that's fine. <laughs> Let's keep praying. <laughs> and I remember going through this part that changed everything. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I could not go through those words when now I can hear with my heart and my ears what I was saying. Forgive me as I forgive. So funny, I couldn't help but see the picture of all these thousands of people I hated. Anytime I go through that part, I'm like, Ugh. it was like something is telling me, you're lying to God. If he have to forgive you the way you forgive, it means don't forgive me because I'm not forgiving. Somebody, what am I going to do? I need his help. I need God to be with me. Anytime I went through that path, it was a red flag. You're lying to God. You have not forgiven them. But he knows how bad they are. <laughs> what am I going to do? Well, I had a better idea. I said, maybe let me skip this part of the prayer. <laughs> so then I don't have to lie to God. Because the problem was not that I need to forgive them. The problem was that I'm lying to the one my life, to the one my life depends on. What happened when we lie to friends? Especially when they know we are lying to them. We lose them. So if God says he made us in his image, somewhere we have something in common. So you can't lie to him. So tell him the truth. Okay, I skipped that part of the prayer. I mean, it is only God I had in that bathroom. Couldn't speak to the girls. We couldn't talk. Couldn't move. We had to be like this. So it was only God. So I skipped the part, and I felt so much better. <laughs> no wonder why they have lie detectors. <laughs> I think the body doesn't really move so good, the blood. When we are lying, something happened. <laughs> So I feel so much better. I skip it, forgive us, but not them. I'll go to the next part. <laughs> and I kept praying like that. No wonder why our church, I'm sure your pastor reminds you, pray, pray. Because it is really the only way to change. If we don't pray, we, we are not going to change. 
Because many people will think we are right. We are okay. Until you start praying and the light comes in. Oh, I should change that way. Oh, I should change that too. Because you gave a chance to God to speak to you and to speak to him. So I am going through that part. I remember I was about to skip it. It was like something's nodding my shoulders. Hey, I hope you know our Lord's prayer is not man-made. He is Jesus himself who gave those words. The one you believe is God. The one you believe cannot lie. The one you believe knows the past and the future. Not that he wills a genocide, but he knows this can happen. Look what happened to him. What do you tell him? He didn't know a genocide can happen. And if he said, pray this way, he didn't say some people. He said, pray this way, all generations. And if he said, pray this way, he made us. He knows our capacity. But it is up to us to will it or not. So I'm fighting myself, but my situation, no, no. He said, pray this way. He didn't say sometimes, some situation. And if God said this, we can be here. It's up to me to believe him. If I am here, it doesn't mean that this is not possible. Who knows more? Who knows me more than him? So I realized that I wasn't there, but I'm below. And that's okay. He's God. I'm not. I can make mistakes. He cannot make mistakes. When I saw that, you know what changed in my heart? I still could not forgive even then. But what changed my heart for the first time in the time I was in that place, I understood the meaning of surrendering. I went on my knees, put my hands up, and I begged God, if you know how to forgive, help me out. I am willing. If you said so, I choose to trust you. You know it's possible, even if I don't get it. But you are God, I am not. I put in his hands between us as human beings. I never thought God would ever find a way to make me forgive somebody who's killing my father, my mom. But I really willed it. Okay, God, if I am asking you to protect me in the bathroom, why can't I trust you to change my heart? At least to do your will. I put in his hands, I put back the prayer, our Lord's prayer, the whole prayer. Anytime I reach that part, I remind him I have not forgiven, but it is in your hands. I am willing. I kept going through that way until one day I was meditating on a part of the rosary, which is when Jesus is dying on the cross. And I'm watching him. I'm watching his mother beneath him. Oh my God, this must be so sad. His mother is there. I mean, I'm, I'm glad my mom was not around me to see me suffering like that. And then he's on the cross. He have nails. Oh, pinch yourself. It hurts. And he has nails. And then I'm thinking, why? Why did he have to go through this? I felt like some words of his were again speaking to my heart. Because I love you. Because I cared for you. Because I wanted to save you. And beside that, I wanted you to know if you ever go through anything close to what I have gone through. 
If you are ever rejected, not well loved, remember I was there before you. Learn from me. How did I behave in my own pain? Did I curse people? Did I want to kill people like you're trying to do? Learn from me. Hold on to the truth, to what is good, and still go through pain with dignity. And as I'm watching that and hearing that in my heart, somehow it took away my self-pity. Me, look how this can happen to me. Look what happened to the one who was pure. Who is God? Who am I to say how this can happen to me? And he loved me. You know, the thing that happened to people, when people tell you, you're too tall, you're too short, you're too big, you're too skinny, you're too dark, you're too light, the worst thing when people make us feel small is not even that they say so, is that we believe them. And then we start to hate ourselves. And then you want to hide. And then you take the shame. And you feel you're not worthy. But when I remember looking at Jesus dying, I said, but nothing is reduced of him. He's still God. He's actually accomplishing more even when he was rejected. So it doesn't mean if I'm rejected that I'm supposed to look at myself small. He saved me through pain. So somehow that was giving me back something. But I remember as I'm watching again in the Bible, thinking of that moment when he said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they do. I wanted to forgive. But I am telling you the truth. I did not know how by this time. I just, I wanted to do whatever God wanted me to do. But how? How do you forgive somebody who's trying to kill everybody who looks like you? Your parents, who is trying to kill you? God, okay, fine, I will follow you, but how? When he said those words, when I saw them in the Bible, meditating on that part, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they do. It wasn't the first part. It was the second. It was like an answer to an equation. When you are a student, they're teaching you one plus two is three. All of a sudden you get it, like, that's it. They don't get it. People are trying to kill you. They don't even measure the consequences will come on them. They don't think of the consequences will come to their family, their children, their wives. And you think they're thinking about the pain they're making you go through. And you trying to be like them does not change one thing. You are becoming what you hate worse. You hate what they're doing to you, and yet you're trying to kill them and be even worse than them. If you have left me in that bathroom outside, the things were going through my body was my mind. I would be a soldier, I would train my body, I would throw bombs all over the country and blow up everybody. That was the justice could have been equal what they were putting us through in the whole country. And Jesus saying, you want to be that? Worse than them. Actually, things I can't even put in practice. But in my head, I was there. And that what happened when we become angry, revengeful. We become hateful. We become sick. You think about somebody who did something bad to you, your hair stands. You think about somebody who have hurt you, your blood runs. Who is hurting? You, with your own thoughts. And I saw it right there. But when he said they don't get it, it was time I said, 
is true. Why my being like them and wanting to be even worse than them and yet from what they're doing? But then how come they don't know what they do and yet they're smart people? They are not sick. I feel like our Lord was saying because they don't love. When there's no love in the heart, not only them, even you, we become we don't know what we do. How many of us have said something, done something, in the moment you do, you feel like you're okay. And a week later, you go like, what's wrong with me? How can I do that? How can I say that? That's the time you get it. Now, you know what you have done. But in the moment you did it, you didn't know. When I was thinking about all that, that's when I realized, okay, even a killer, there is a chance they can see what they're doing, not maybe now, but later. But somehow, I still felt that they're bad. I can forgive them, but they will go to hell. That's the kind of forgiveness I had for them. And I remember, I felt Jesus was showing me something. It was like the world was divided in two parts. A part of love and a part of hate. And a part of love were people like Mandela, people like Gandhi, people like Mother Teresa. And on a part of hate were people like Hitler, people were causing a genocide in Rwanda, killing people, revenge for me, who was there trying to revenge, if in my mind at least. And I felt like our Lord was showing me Notice people who are on the side of love. Are people who have suffered, who have known injustice. Mandela, Gandhi. People who have known hatred, but no matter what happens to them, nothing will change their mind to become hateful. They will die defending truth, defending peace, and yet they know what it feels like to be mistreated. Who do you want to stand with? And I want to leave that with you too. Who do we want to stand with? With Hitler? Be worse than him? Or stand with Mother Teresa, with Gandhi? When I saw that, I realized I wanted to be with Gandhi. These are the people I admire. Actually, I see as strong. And the people have suffered. People who spend their life trying to get the ones here to hear who believe in the ones who have done bad, that they can change. When I saw that, that's when I started to pray for those who are killing us. I realized that they need our prayers. If we think our prayers has power, then send it to the one who is captive in the hands of the enemy. And when they let go, then you have saved not only you, but so many other people they could have, been, they could have hurt. When I felt that, it was like a huge luggage was lifted. I couldn't think of bad anymore. I can smile again. And I thought, if I come out, I'm going to be okay. As long as I believe it is heaven, even if people die in my family, it won't be end of it. I remember before I came out of the bathroom, it was about the end of the three months, I had a dream, a dream about Jesus. In a dream, he told me, my child, when you come outside, 
you will find out that everybody you left behind will be killed. But if you continue to trust me and to love me, funny, he didn't mention nothing about forgiveness. But later I realized you can't really love God without forgiving. When you love somebody, you embrace them. Especially God, you know he's right and trust them means you trust everything he says. If you continue to trust me and to love me, I will be there for you and I will do more for you than what your parents could have been able to do for you. That's what he said in the dream. And I remember I jumped because I can see him. It was like I can see him. He was skinny. There was no cross, but he was almost like the way he was on the cross. He was sad, like, a, you know, like the situation in, in you know, the genocide. And after he said that, I said, of course, if you can take care of me, who else do I need? In a dream, when I woke up, I beat myself. I said, I said yes to that. I should have asked him to protect them. And by this time, actually, I found out later some family members were still alive. But the dream I thought was just a dream. Later I find out it was not just a dream. Three months later, the war was over. We came out, and the very first night, I was in the refugee camp. I found out everybody I left behind was killed. My mom was killed. My dad, my two brothers, my grandma, my grandpa, my neighbors, my schoolmates, my best friends, everybody was killed. A million people was killed in a period of three months. Rwanda is the size of Maryland state. It's a small country. Everywhere was dead bodies. More than a million, actually, was killed. Everywhere was dead bodies. And many times I felt, what do I do? You die, you crush, when something like this happened. And somehow I will cry and just, I'm dying. The home we owned, everything we owned was burned out. And I will feel like there is a giant hand of my heart, in my heart, something holding me strong in my stomach and my chest, reminding me, don't cry. Don't crush. I am with you. Remember me in the bathroom. Talk to me. Ask me for anything you need. And remember, the journey of your loved ones is over here on earth, but not over there. And your journey is not yet over. And it is up to you how you choose to use it. It might be one more day, one more week, and truly, no one of us here has even a guarantee to live one more hour, one week. Somehow we managed to take it for granted. But I felt like God was telling me, whatever your journey remaining of your life may be, maybe one day, one week, one year, 50 years, 60 years, whatever that might be, remember, it's up to you to use it to love, or to hate, to uplift or to put down, to be kind or to be mean. And it is up to you. But if you choose love, remember, I am with you. 
ask me for anything you need, I will help you on the journey. I will literally wake up in the refugee camp with dust on my face, with tears, and I will just follow that voice inside. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going even to live until the end of the day, but if I do, at least let me die doing something good. And I will reach out to somebody, a mother who just lost 10 children, completely lost her mind, somebody with a cut arm. There were many different types of refugee people in that camp, and I will just reach out to them, even if it means just to ask, how can I help you? How are you? How can, what can I do for you? That felt like enough for the day. And in the evening, I would pray to my God, I think today I have done just enough loving little things. And to me, that became the motto of my life. If only I can do one loving thing, maybe talking to somebody, I know God will be there for me. And slowly, everything started to come. I wrote letters to God, which I still do to this day. I would ask him, I need a friend. I mean, the good thing is that you can ask God anything because he's God. You can't ask another friend, I need a friend. No, God can do that. I would ask him on a paper, I need clothes to change. Like a, a child asking dad because he's the only one who is there now. I need a pen and a notebook and to see the hand of God in your life. When you have nobody, you don't have a phone to send a text, to send an email. You don't have any connection, not your parents, not a family member. And yet God still answers. That's really when you have a good relationship. Because when you can say, I remember just a little thing. One thing I had on my paper, I have asked God to give me. I wanted close to change. And a friend of mine who had a scholarship in Europe, in Belgium, sent me a jeans and a t-shirt, put it in an envelope and a letter. And she said in the letter, I have heard many people in our classmates who died, but nobody yet confirmed to me that you are dead. But if you are still alive, you must need clothes to change. She put that in an envelope gave it to a military person who was leaving Europe, coming to Rwanda to help from the UN, and that military ended up in my refugee camp, which was maybe 300 of them in the whole country. And that same thing was on my paper, asking God, I need clothes to change. And he had to speak to somebody, not really even speak loud, but make that lady send that. It was those times you said, ah, it is so good. I can talk to you in the hall and you will still make something happen. All I need to do is just to do your will and to put my trust in you. Slowly, I mean, those who read Left to Tell and the second book, Led by Faith, I wrote, I wrote about especially the miracles I saw in my life, which we all see really when we pay attention. Soon after, like two weeks later, one of my things was, God, I need a room to sleep in because we were sleeping on the ground. Not like here, on bricks floor, on the dirt. You will sleep on the ground. In the morning, you remove stones under your cheek because they have not prepared for any refugee like that. And I told God, it was like almost God was saying, instead of complaining, 
tell me what you need. Because you can spend your time saying, I can't believe in this. I can't believe this is happening. Or you can say, I need this. And that was a really big journey to come from my complaining, my let me tell him what I need, despite of what have happened. So we tell him I need clothes and I need a home. I need not I just need a simple. Only what I needed, I need a bedroom, I need a bed sheets, and I need a blanket. I like details. Soon after a lady came to the refugee camp, the most unlikely person who was, a, who was actually like a handicapped woman without legs in Rwanda. She's in a wheelchair. When you are in a wheelchair in Rwanda, you are pushing the wheelchair in a dirt road. It's not like here you can push something and just goes where you want. She was covered by dust. And this is the lady who came and say, I knew you, mom, and I'm going to take you out of this refugee camp. I'm like, I know I'm praying, but I don't know you, but I think I need to help you. You can't help me. She went back. I said, no to that. She came back next day. She said, I know you don't believe me, but for the sake of your mom, I will take anybody you want so that I can take you out of this refugee camp, if that makes you safe. I gave her 10 people. I said, okay, you take all of us. She said, okay. She brought a car. She took us to the city. She actually had a beautiful home. Gave us rooms. And she said, in the morning, get up and go look for a job. I just wanted to do this for your mother. Because I knew her. And she loved me. She had done something for, for her. So later, I mean, the same thing as coming in this country. I remember 1998. It was also a miracle. I have got a job in the UN, which again, I wrote how everything happened in my book, Left to Tell. And I remember before I came to this country, I have to go back to visit somebody who killed my family. And then many people used to tell me, you cannot forgive this quickly. It doesn't happen like that. It's going to come back to you. And I remember I said, let me go and see this person. The peace I feel, I don't want it to be fake. I want it to be real. I went to the prison. The head of the prison was a friend of my dad who had just lost five children. I remember he brought the man who killed my family in a corner. He is walking. He used to be a man I knew. A man like many of you who used to wear a suit, a good man, was a teacher one time, worked in the government, and now he was in a prison. And I remember he had one foot swelling. His hair was upside down. His beard had not shaved for six months. It was a terrible scene to see. And I just broke down and cried. It was like Jesus was saying, you see what I told you? He could not have known what he was doing. And that what happened to one of us when we act out of selfishness, out of anger. We put ourselves in places we don't want to go. I reached out to him and I told him I forgave him. My heart was completely at peace. And why I told him I forgave him, it wasn't that. It wasn't like I want him to know. I wanted to free him. That what was in my heart. I wanted him not to have me as an excuse for not to find himself. I wanted to free him to say, don't think I'm mad at you. Look what I killed. I just wanted him to go in his heart and say, what have I done? How can I do what I did? I wanted when his children come to see him in a prison, he can tell them, never do what I have done. Look at the consequences. Never hate people. 
don't kill people. And I offered him forgiveness. I remember he covered his head. He couldn't look at me. And the head of the jail was very mad. But I left quickly. A year later, this man came to look for me where I was working at the UN, the head of the jail. And I told him, I'm so sorry that day. I didn't remember that you lost your family and I forgave him. He said, no, I came to thank you. I never thought that forgiveness was possible. This man revealed to me, he used to beat the prisoners and he would go home feeling better. The next day he would come back with even more anger. Beat them again to revenge his family. He would go back home again feeling better. Next morning he would be more angry. And he said, after you forgave that man, the next day I wanted to speak to them to find out what they did more than beating him. And he said it was through speaking to them that I realized many were regretting and he was able to find his also forgiveness. And I was so happy and it is really the reason I shared the story. 1998, I moved to United States in the UN here in New York City. There, not here. <laughs> and 2006, I wrote my first book, which was really a miracle. Also, just through prayer, asking God, help me. You know, people used to tell me, write a book, and I would laugh at them. I don't even speak English. How can I write a book in English? Which finally I listened to them, and three days later, I met somebody who actually asked me to write a book after I just finished it. And the book was out. I remember two weeks later, it was outside. It was a New York Times bestseller. I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> but later I found out it was a big blessing. A blessing that allowed me to make a foundation that helps people in Rwanda where I proceed of my work goes to continue to help other people still going through those troubles. But especially it allowed me to speak about my faith. People inviting me to want to share. I mean, I never dreamt this kind of life is possible in my childhood. You know, here you tell children, what do you want to do when you grow up? I would never have thought this was going to be. But somehow, in a very funny way, I feel home. Not only in this country, but in my work. I always wanted to share faith, to speak about faith, to share what God is doing for me. And a friend of mine who was a Protestant, she used to tell me, you know, you can be a preacher. <laughs> but I said, but I'm not, I'm Catholic. We don't become preachers. I'm a woman. <laughs> but what, something you still need to follow something because the things of God interest you. And finally, however God does things, found a way for me to share faith. And it feels good. It feels home. But most importantly, I know we are all passengers in this world. And the end will come for each one of us. And I really ask you to pray for me as I pray for you that we make it up there. Especially, of course, I want to see Jesus, but I want to see my family. And I know they died as martyrs. They died for what God created them to be. And each one of them died as they lived. My mom died trying to save his children. He heard somebody was screaming, and she thought it was my brother. She came out of the hiding. And somebody was hiding with her, told me later, like I tried to stop her. And she said, no, I cannot hide if my child is dying. 
and that's how she died. My father died coming out of refugee camp. He said he wanted to, to get food for the refugee people. And the mayor ordered the soldiers to shoot him. So they died in a very horrible way. And I don't know if we have that death where we'll be able to prepare ourselves. But God is almighty. If we can ask him for anything else to protect us, to give us food, we can also ask him for anything. My daughter one time told me, she's, I, now I have children, I, I'm a mother. And um, when she was four years old, she asked him one time, she said, Mom, how come you don't have parents like everybody? I told her they're in heaven. And then she said, but how come they don't come to see you? <laughs> so, well, <laughs> when you go to heaven, you don't come back. <laughs> but you wait there because we all go there if we work good, if we do this and that. And she looked at me in tears and she said, you mean you two, you're going to leave me and never come back to see me? <laughs> I said, well, you know, I never in my lifetime asked God, don't let my parents die. I just took it for granted. I thought they would be there forever. But now that we are concerned about that, we can ask God to keep us together for a long, long time. I remember one thing, really talks come true, prayers do come true. My mom used to say, I just pray that I die when my last child, who will be alive, can help himself or herself. And when she died, I was in college, and I was able to find a job. So in some ways, she got her wish. And truly, when you have a dream, you have a prayer request, say it. Our dear God does listen. So anyway, before I end, and I know I can talk forever, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's three months. (laughs) Well, before I end, I really want to thank you again. I want to thank you so, so much for inviting me to share my story. Until I wrote the book, I didn't know how much was so much the same at heart. And I mean it when I say I'm in America and I feel home because I see God in you. And when there is love, you know you are one. I go to China, to Japan, and people ask me same questions you ask me. To South Africa, South America, we're so much the same at heart. But even if I speak to groups and big groups like you, I'm aware I'm speaking to one heart to individuals. Each one of us, we have our own stories. We all go through our own little troubles and the big troubles. And I really want to insist on this from my heart to yours. No matter what happens to you, no matter what happens to you, remember there is always hope in God. Hold on to him. He's almighty. Scream his name. Don't let nothing take away from him. And he will show himself to you in his way that your heart will recognize and acknowledge. And especially, I want to tell you, please, if I can forgive, anyone can forgive. And there is so much peace there. So much freedom. They are to ask for him to help you. Thank you again. And I hope I can take some of you one day to my country. I do take groups to visit Rwanda. Actually, I have t-shirts 
I'm raising money to give to people who couldn't make it to come and who really do need it. But I thank you so much for bringing me to Shellview community. May God bless you. Be seated for just a minute. Um, thank you so much. You don't need to go too far away. I, I'm going to, um, if you're going to hang around, there are lots of books and other things you can purchase. And Immaculate will be in the narthex where you can chat with her. I think we're going to forego the Q&A tonight. Um, but I hope you will bear with me for a moment. Since this is the last event in this year's series, I do always feel like I have um, some important thank yous to say. Um, as I've said every time that we gather, these events are made possible only through the generosity of individuals and organizations. Uh, many of them are here tonight, and I will lift up just a few. I want to thank Thrivent Financial, uh, Productivity Inc., Greg and Lisa, um, Cressa, Jim and Ruth Ann, uh, TCF Bank, uh, Phil and Mona, um, Rapid Packaging, Mastercraft, Jeff and Patrice, uh, Bruce at Sparky, the McLaurin Institute and Luther Seminary, um, as well as all of the individuals you see listed on your, um, your program. Again, many of these individuals are here tonight. Will you please help me thank them for bringing wonderful speakers like Immaculate? I also, I also want to, as always, give a, a Great thank you to our, our dear friend Jeff Elstead. This is the 60th event. Uh, Jeff has been at all but maybe one or two of them, and the one or two that he's missed, he's been here in spirit through his CDs. So Jeff, thank you, my dear friend. Thank you very much. Um, and then I want to thank all of you. You know, over 12 years, this series has put down deep roots in our community and our region. People have come from as far away as Canada and Texas, believe it or not, um, to come to these just this evening at a little pre-event with some of our major donors. I shared the story of a gentleman who wrote from a thousand miles away who has listened to all of the podcasts from these events and talked about how it had changed his life. So we're doing something powerful and important through, through these events, and I'm so grateful that all of you came out on a beautiful April day to be present, and I hope you will tell other people about them and join us in the fall. You'll notice our uh, opening event is on October 8th. Uh, come back for that. We've got most of next year's series lined up, um, and stay in touch with us through Facebook or e email, and you can read more about that here. Okay, Immaculate, um, thank you again for being uh, with us. We give all of our speakers a little gift. I would like to give you this with our profound gratitude for blessing us with your presence. It's a piece of granite which says, hmm, you have a very powerful story. <laughs> with thanks to Immaculate Ilabagiza, which I always get that last name wrong, but I did, is that okay? Immaculate Ilabagiza for bringing faith to life, and we do thank you very much indeed.
Thank you. Thank you.